Normally on a Sunday like this, I would present to you a message about fathering. And men, simply because I am not doing that, I don't want you to believe yourself to be unscathed with the convicting power of the Word of God. And so next time, Lord willing, you'll have a challenging message on the theme of what it means to be a father. But because next Lord's Day I'll be out of the pulpit speaking in San Diego, California at a biblical counseling conference, and because of the opportunity to continue the momentum of our series on the second coming, I wanted to press ahead with Mark chapter 13. Next Lord's Day, Pastor Todd Murray will preach, give us some direction with regard to worship and praise. And this morning, in our limited time together, I want to remind you of what we are all about in Mark chapter 13. You remember, if you were here last time, that I said to you that Mark chapter 13, which describes prophecy from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is to be understood and interpreted as having both what we might call a near and a far fulfillment. You remember I said to you that, as it seems to me, as one Bible interpreter at least, that there are statements, questions by the disciples and answers by Jesus, that lead me to conclude that what we have in Mark chapter 13, the whole chapter, are two similar yet distinct views about the future. And of course, when Jesus spoke these words, the near fulfillment of his prophecy seems to me to be fulfilled some 40 years later, around 70 A.D., when there was a destruction of the city of Jerusalem and a destroying of the Jewish temple. But it also seems to me, as you read and study Mark chapter 13, that there appears to be a far or a future fulfillment that went beyond that 70 A.D. fulfillment, and in fact continues even beyond the, the couple of thousand years that has gone after that and even yet in our own future. I refer, of course, to what I believe part of what this text is saying, and that is referring to the actual universal cataclysmic occurrence of the second coming of none other than the Lord himself. You say, well, how can that be valid that one prophecy of Jesus could be referring to two separate events with so much time elapsed between the first part of its fulfillment and its last? Well, I believe that that is possible, and I want to show you that this morning. You remember last time that I said to you that I believe that there are two major reasons for my calling myself a futurist. Now, do you remember those definitions of the words that I'm using, which you need to have a handle on in order for you to understand what I'm teaching? 
if you are a visitor with us, I have defined that the two major ways of understanding this passage of Mark 13, and not only this passage, but other passages of prophecy, are one, the preterist position, preterist being the Latin word that simply means past, and the futurist position, that being the idea that this prophecy of Jesus, at least in part, still looks to a future day in order to see its ultimate fulfillment. The preterist sees Mark 13 as having already passed in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and the futurist sees, at least some of them do, like myself, some of a 70 AD fulfillment here, but also a second coming fulfillment that obviously has not yet occurred. So, what are the reasons that I might say about myself that I'm a futuristic premillennialist? Well, I told you last time that there were two major reasons. That is not true. I came up with another one this week. You know, as you continue to mull over things and think through things, and believe me, because I'm on the hot seat and I'm not even sitting down, this is an incredibly complex and difficult topic in which to teach. Difficult because there are so many good men who disagree. For instance, the man I just mentioned and his homegoing, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, was a futuristic premillennialist, even though he was Presbyterian and covenantal in much of what he taught on other aspects of biblical theology. And yet others, maybe someone like R.C. Sproul or some other a well-known person would classify themselves as a preterist. That is, that they would see these events either as a post-millennialist or as an amillennialist as occurring already in time with no future event set to occur save one thing, and that is the second coming of Christ for which Mark 13 is not referring. And so these are good men, great men, godly men, men who all have minds far greater than mine. And yet we must, I must, you must grapple with these texts and come to a place of understanding what they mean. How am I to understand these things? You remember I said to you very, very quickly that number one, one of the reasons that a preterist would see these events in Mark 13 as already occurring are what I call the time texts. The texts of Mark 13 that seem to lead one to conclude that what Jesus is referring to is something that is yet future to them, but to us has already passed. Forty years in the future to them, so it would be a prophecy about the future, but since we were not living at that time, and it's been uh, some... 18, 19, almost 2,000 years since that time, we would see those things, the preterist would say, as a past event with no continuing futuristic implications of this chapter. And they would say, one of the reasons that I do this is because of Mark 13, verses 1 to 4. The, the disciples were asking a direct question of Jesus. They pointed to the temple Jesus pointed back at the temple to refer to the very stones in that building, and he said, I tell you that no stone on this building will stand upon another. It will all be decimated, destroyed. And then in Mark chapter 13, verse 30, the second 
and probably for the preterist, the most important time text, he says, this generation shall not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. And the preterist would say, almost with a look of incredulity to everyone who wouldn't see this, how could it mean anything other than this generation, the very generation that Jesus was speaking to? And I agree, to some degree. But I don't completely agree, and you'll find out why. Because, even though that would be a major coup for the preterist position, I don't believe that all of the time texts in Mark chapter 13 are referring to the past. I believe that some of the time texts are referring to the past, and Mark 13 verses 1 to 4 and the destroying of that very temple is one of those that has passed. And I also believe that verse 30 of the same chapter and the this generation phrase, Ganea, is also referring at least primarily, if not exclusively, to this past destruction of Jerusalem. I have no problem with that. But here's what I have a challenge about. There is another time text in Mark 13 that I'm not so sure about, and I want you to look at it with me. It's a time text that talks about the idea that appears to me to be referring by Jesus to the second coming. Look at verse 32. He says, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. You say, now what relevance might that have? What's the issue here? Well, here's my problem. The futurists also have a time text, and it is in this verse, and it's only two verses removed from the time text of the preterist. And yet it seems to me that this particular time text, and by time text I'm simply meaning a text that is referring somehow to time, right? That this time text is somehow speaking of something that I don't see could possibly mean that Jesus was referring to that generation. You say, how so? Well, think about it. It's, it seems to me to be very, very clear. Jesus is now seated on the Mount of Olives. His closest four disciples ask him privately about this incredible statement about the temple, and he tells them, in answer to their question, when will these things happen? And he gives them an answer, and I believe the preterist is right when he says it's going to happen in your generation. But then two verses later, he says, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now what happens between verses 1 to 4 and the discussion about the temple and these two time texts in verses 30 and 32? What happens in between? I'm going to tell you what happens. If you just read the chapter, you know that it talks, it talks about wars and rumors of war and famines and kingdoms against kingdoms and nations against nations. I mean, it's talking about something that's an incredibly important amount of information that Jesus says is going to happen and when he says it's going to happen, you just read it and you say to yourself, Jesus is a true prophet because he nails every minute detail of what's going to happen. I mean, you read this section uh, from verses 5 all the way to verse 30, and you're going to come to the same conclusion that I did. Jesus tells explicitly what's going to happen. And if I were to be a preterist, and if I were to hear of all of these things that Jesus says, 
And believe it or not, one of these days, probably in the next millennium, we're going to get to the text of Mark 13. Believe me. But what Jesus says in that text is this. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. You're going to see this. You're going to see this. He even identifies what appears to be a man who creates an abomination of desolation. He talks about this and this. He gives so much detail. It's so explicit. And then in verse 30, he gives a time text and he says, and it's going to happen in your generation. And the preterist applauds and says, that's it, that's what I understand, and all of that explicit detail, and all of that is right, and it shows me that that stuff must have already passed, and that Jesus' prophecy did come true, and it came true in 70 A.D. That closes all the books, I'm satisfied. But it seems to me very strange that if you go two verses later from this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place, and then in verse 32 he says, but on that day or hour no one knows, not even the Son. What? How could Jesus prophesy every minute detail of this passage? Every stone's going to be toppled on another. All of this is going to happen to you and the nations around you and all of this detail and it's explicit. And then when he says in answer to your question, when is this going to happen? I'm going to tell you that even this generation will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. And then two verses later he says, but as to exactly when, I couldn't tell you as to exactly when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 70 A.D., no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Folks, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. Now, I'm not saying that the preterist makes no sense. He's trying to understand this passage just like I am. And for him, this is a problem time text. He has a good one. It's verse 30. But he has a challenging one. It's verse 32. Because you have Jesus given all this explicit detail and he tells exactly what's going to happen in the most minute elements and he says, and it's even going to happen in your generation, but if you're going to ask me for the exact time and the exact date, I don't know. Folks, that doesn't sound to me like it fits. It doesn't sound to me like it fits at all. In fact, it sounds very much like what I told you last time and that was this that it appears to me that Jesus is answering two different questions, similar but distinct. One of the questions that he's answering, and I think is the fulfillment of 70 AD and the holocaust of destruction against the Jews for rejecting their Messiah, was when will these things be? When will this temple be destroyed? He gives the right answer, and he gives the prophetic answer precisely and explicitly, and it's going to happen in this generation. I'm going to give you the details, and I'm even going to give you the when of when this is going to happen. But then, I believe, as Matthew's Gospel attests, they ask another question related but distinct. And they say, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Very important question. And I believe that verse 30 is answering the when of the first fulfillment 70 A.D., and the answer to the second question is verse 32. You see it? But of that day, or that hour, of the second coming, the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. 
In other words, my problem with this, folks, is that how could Jesus predict something so explicitly and to communicate it to the very generation who would experience this very destruction and yet he himself would not know the day nor the hour of its precise fulfillment when he's given all the other details already. And even the when question he's answered, but then apparently if they further question him, well, what's going to be the exact day and what's going to be the exact hour in 70 A.D. that all these things be fulfilled? And he says, I don't know. The son doesn't know that. Nor the angels in heaven. It doesn't make sense to me. How could he say in one place, this generation would be the ones to receive this terrible judgment, yet two verses later, not to know when these things would be fulfilled? No, no it doesn't make sense to me. Jesus knew exactly what would happen some 40 years later. He knew exactly it was going to be in 70 A.D., and he knew exactly the day and the hour. Of course he did. He didn't want to give them the exact precision, and so he says this, I'm not going to give you the exact day or the hour, but one thing I'll tell you, this generation shall not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. That's good enough for you. You're going to see it with your own eyes. But when describing events about his own second coming and the answer of the question, what is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, he knows everything except in his earthly ministry as the God-man, as the one who is ministering as a human being. God the Father has kept the day and the hour from the angels in heaven and the Son in his earthly ministry, not wanting Jesus in his humanity to know until he and the Father would be reunited again after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. You say, you think Jesus knows the day of his return? Now, of course he does. He's been glorified. He died. He was buried. He was raised again. He was ascended to the Father. He sits now at the right hand of the Father. They know the plan. He knows the day of the hour now. That's what I believe. You say, that's strange. Does anybody else believe that? Yes. You think I'd go out on a limb all by myself? Surely not. F.F. Bruce, great New Testament scholar, he said this, but what is the day or hour to which, verse 32, the verse we're talking about, refers? Here's what he says. Certainly not the day or hour of the destruction of the temple. What the whole context, and not only the hard saying of verse 30, emphasizes about that event is its nearness and certainty. The event whose timing is known to none but the Father cannot be anything other than the coming of the Son of Man described in verse 26. End quote. In other words, F.F. Bruce, larger brain than mine, I'll grant, says, doesn't seem to fit to me either. Seems to me that verse 32 is cataclysmic, universal, not local. It's global. And as to the second coming, not the angels in heaven, nor the sun on earth knows the day or the hour. And neither do any of us, by the way contrary to what so many people through so many ages have assumed they do know that they can ascertain by some sort of biblical numerology the day and the hour of the coming of Christ. In fact, I'm so leery of people like that, even though some good-natured and well-meaning as some of them are, I'm always saying to myself underneath my breath, especially to those I know to be true brothers and sisters in Christ, does Jesus not himself say that he does not know in his earthly ministry, and you and I are not the God men and women 
And plus, if we think we know the day or the hour and we say that Christ is coming back at that time, aren't we under the chastisement of Jesus' own words when he says, false Christ, false messiahs will come, don't believe them. Watch out. Watch out for anybody who says Christ will return here. Almost every cult you know of has been in this predictive prophetic arena saying Christ will come at this time and every single one of them up to this point has been dead wrong, right? Boy, I don't want to speculate on those things. And I know that sometimes what that does is it causes people to shy away from eschatology altogether and say, well, that's just for you theologues in your ivory towers. It's not for me. But remember what I said. Peter links it up with the life of godliness you're supposed to live now. You're supposed to know eschatology. You're supposed to know final things, save the precise hour, the precise moment, the precise day of Jesus coming. Only the Trinity knows precisely when that is, and they know it right now even as we speak, but we do not. Now, you say, all right, now you've created a huge problem. You mean to tell me that you're saying that one verse, verse 30, is referring to something that happened almost 2,000 years ago, and two verses later, there's something that's happening yet future, and it may not only be over the 2,000 years that we've experienced, but it could be another 2,000 years. It could be another 10,000. You mean to tell me that Mark, as he recorded these things, didn't understand that? That's exactly right. I don't know of any Old Testament prophet who fully understood, let alone these New Testament writers, everything that they wrote. In fact, Scripture clearly tells us that some of them longed to understand exactly what they were writing. It's not a problem. And remember I told you that this second major reason, not just the time text, now this second reason, which I'm going to share with you right now, is very important, and that is this. These prophets whether they be Old Testament prophets or whether they be Jesus himself in this very text of Mark 13, often gave a prophecy in one unit, one box of thoughts that had sometimes not just one fulfillment, not just two fulfillments, but three or more fulfillments. You say, how does that square? How do you believe that? Well, there are clearly, beloved, clearly passages in the Old Testament which says this will come and it came immediately upon the Jewish people. But clearly, some New Testament writers didn't believe that that was its only application. And they would say that which was spoken through the prophet must be fulfilled saying, and they quote the very same thing, and it had its fulfillment way back then, but it also has its fulfillment when the New Testament writer says it does because he's also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes even the New Testament writer, when he said that Old Testament prophet is speaking now, that doesn't mean that he was saying he didn't speak back then to the application that he used or that there was any problem with him changing the application. And it may even be that he says this is the fulfillment and it's fulfilled right then and then there's a future fulfillment as well. Nothing wrong with that. Remember I talked to you last week about the subject of hermeneutics, the science and art of biblical interpretation? And there's no law, there's no rule against uh, some kind of Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled in multiple ways. That's what I believe is happening here in Mark 13. It's what I could call double or maybe even multiple fulfillments. 
this double or multiple fulfillment could take on several forms. For instance, it could be prophecies which are fulfilled both in a near sense, exactly as the prophet said it would to the Jewish nation, and it happened right then and right there to that Jewish nation. And it could be that the Jews at that time thought that was the only application of it because it was predicted and it was fulfilled and that's it and they're in it and that's all there is to it. And it could have been that even they died believing that that was the only fulfillment to such a thing. But then the New Testament comes along and it takes on a different form. A New Testament writer says, I'm going to borrow that Old Testament text, not because of his whim, not because of his arbitrary desire, but because the Holy Spirit is leading him to do it. And he says, this is that which the Old Testament prophet spoke. And he says, it's happening right now. And it's happening right now, and it's exactly what God wanted. So if God has those kinds of hermeneutics, I think I can too. And it could be that a New Testament writer, even beyond one of the other New Testament writers, says, I'm going to quote the same passage, and I'm going to use it in a completely different context to speak about something that may happen in the future that didn't happen during the first part of the beginning of the church or some other age. And apparently, the New Testament writers didn't have a problem using Scripture in that way. You're saying, well, boy, it sounds like maybe playing a little fast and loose with the Scripture. No. It's really our burden to understand exactly what they were doing because they're the ones who are under the inspiration of the Spirit. This word that we are trying to understand is a perfect word. It is an inerrant word. Our challenge is to try to understand the hermeneutics of how and why they felt the freedom to go through some of these Old Testament prophecies and apply them at different places with what appeared to be a precise fulfillment of that which was predicted. You know, it's even interesting that there are not just prophecies that say this is going to happen in a predictive sense, in a futuristic sense, but there are also names and descriptions and metaphors that are used in the Old Testament that ultimately what they appear to us to be in our age is describing us. Have you ever had that sense of thing? In fact, that was my third point. One of the keys to interpreting Mark 13, as well as other prophetic passages of Scripture, is to acknowledge your presuppositions about your hermeneutics. Now, I, I barely mentioned that last time, but what I mean by that is this. Look, everybody goes to the texts of Scripture with the idea that certain passages are a problem to your system. Now, when I say everybody, I mean everybody who's seriously wanting to grapple with these things. Not somebody who's never studied these things, but somebody who has and says, how does this passage relate to this one? How does this square with this one? How does this system work with this system? Whether that's uh, from a, a sort of unpolished, uh, undisciplined layman perspective, or someone who's very disciplined and polished as a layman, or someone who's a scholar. Everyone is saying, how do all of these things fit together? And what we need to do, and what we need to admit, and I admit it first out of the chute, is that I have some presuppositions about Mark 13 that arrived before I ever read the passage. Does that shock you? This is true confession. I admit it. And so does everyone else. And the one who does not admit it, their breath stinks. They're probably not people who are very honest. Why? Because everybody must understand that these passages have to be interpreted in a certain way and they can't all fit together unless you figure out what somebody else has said about them. That's so honest. I mean, it just breathes a, a, a breath of fresh air into my soul when I admit that. 
because everybody is groping in the dark. We're human beings. We're trying to understand these very weighty matters. And what my presuppositions are, are these. Since I am a person who assumes, because of other passages that I've read, like the Old Testament, like prophecies about Israel and the fulfillment of a land, and an unconditional promise that they'd receive that land, and an unconditional promise that they would be God's people, and that he would never leave them, and that his gifts and callings to them are irrevocable. That means that they will never change, no matter what the Jewish nation does, even though they go through patterns, as we all see, of obedience, disobedience, cursing, all of that. No matter, when you read those Old Testament passages, you say in your mind, at least I do, I'm not sure. Now notice what I say. I'm not sure that those passages don't have a yet future national geographical fulfillment to a people of God known as the Jews, spiritually speaking. I'm not so sure that those passages don't say that. I'm not so willing to say, well, I read those Old Testament passages and it seems to me that they are spiritually fulfilled in the church today. Now, somebody with the presupposition that they see more continuity in the Testaments and their relationship to each other, they would not have a problem with that. They would say, I don't have a problem. You yourself said that there are some Old Testament prophets that use prophecy in a certain way, and then there are some New Testament writers that apparently don't have any problem taking those Old Testament passages and applying them to the church. Aha! There's all kinds of continuity there. I mean, you seem to be one of those guys that talks about discontinuity. You see this Old Testament prophecy, you say it's going to be fulfilled in the future, and you say that it might be fulfilled to some degree now, but that you also believe that it's going to be fulfilled sometime in the future, and that looks like some level of discontinuity. I admit it. I admit it. It seems to me to be a better way of amalgamating all of the passages together to fit, knowing that I'm going to have to hedge on a few of them, because they don't seem like they fit, but I have to look at them and say, okay, well, maybe they have some other understanding that I've not understood before. How can they be better understood? And there's someone who's a preterist, who is the guy who normally sees more continuity than discontinuity, and he will say, well, I have no problem with these passages at all. I think you're right. The New Testament writer clearly applies them to the church, and in fact, but here's a presupposition, I believe that all of the prophecies save the second coming of Christ. I believe he's coming yet future. But all those others are spiritually fulfilled in the church because when the Jews rejected Messiah, they rejected him and so God rejected them as a people. And because of that presupposition, God rejected them as a people, as a nation, spiritually even, that therefore... The church receives the blessings and not the people of God, namely the Jews. God's given up on them because they rejected Messiah. You look at all these gospel accounts and he's giving them the gospel. He says, I've only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm coming to you. I'm coming. Oh, I would love to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks, but you would not. I'm coming to you. I even give Judas this sup of fellowship and he, he rejects me. And in fact, these Pharisees and this temple and this whole thing is going to come down and it's going to be destroyed. And the temple, even to this day, historically speaking, has never been rebuilt. So therefore, God must be as a testament both in history and scripture giving up on the Jews and now God went a different direction as he planned all along and that was to fulfill all of the spiritual blessings 
of those Old Testament prophecies in the church. Now some of you say, that's my position. It's good, isn't it? I'm, uh, I'm looking pretty good in my system. But there are some texts, and you know them, uh, if you've studied it all, and you know who you are, and you know that you have to do what I do, you have to say, oh, that's a tough one. That, yes, I admit that. Ooh, that's a tough one for my system. And so what we all have to do is we all have to say, what's the best plan? What's the best way to understand these? I'll tell you. I'll tell you the best way to understand them. The best way to understand them is recognize your presuppositions and then interpret the Bible accordingly. That's okay. It's all right. I mean, there might be someone who's somewhat cavalier and they come along and say, as I said last week, well, I just have my Bible and I just went and I just studied it and I came out a preterist. I mean, it's obvious. The problem is, you're sitting next to a person who said, I did the same thing and I came out a futurist. You say, well, it's only because you haven't really studied these passages. <laughs> well, what have I been doing for all of these hours, all of these weeks, and all of these months and years? I'm certainly willing to say I'm one of those ones that sort of jumped into the fray and I'm looking at these passages too. I'm not just accepting someone's presuppositions only for the sake of their presupposition. I've already admitted to you, I see some real inconsistencies in the way some dispensationalists have tried to interpret these time texts. I've already told you, I don't buy it. I, I, think, I think they're in error there. I think sometimes they do exegetical gymnastics, as I said. They're just sort of flipping and flopping and floating around, and they're trying to come up with a system, and I don't think sometimes that system fits really well. But I think it's also true that on the other side of things, uh, those who are honest and faithful to the Scripture as preterists say, you know what, I agree that there are some things within my system that I'm not so sure about either, and I'm not truly believing those arguments either. So I'm coming toward you, you're coming toward me, do you think we could meet in the middle somewhere? I think maybe that's coming. I've been reading some books and some articles recently in which tremendous reproachment, dialogue, has occurred between both sides. I think you may see, maybe not in our lifetime, but maybe in the lifetime next, if Jesus doesn't come, which is a presupposition, of course, because I believe that these passages will help us see and understand those things. That there might very well be a coming together of two systems that amalgamate into one system. I think it's coming. Now you say, well, I buy all of this stuff that you're saying up to the point where you haven't even gone to the texts. Okay, well, let's go to a few of them, and we'll do them real quickly. I want you to go in your Bible to Joel chapter 2. You see why it's so hard just to sort of jump into Mark 13? You can't. You have to go to these other passages and understand them. Now, what I'm going to give you real quickly is the opportunity for you to see what I'm saying about either double fulfillment or the idea of people's presuppositions coming into the picture. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, look at verse 18. Now this is a very significant Old Testament prophecy, very significant. Many people believe that it has futuristic implications. Here's Joel 2.18, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, and he'll have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you. Stop right there. Now, if you study this passage 
everyone is going to have to conclude that in some sense, Joel's prophecy was speaking about the here and now as they understood it, right? The northern army. I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense unless there's some sort of immediate fulfillment or at least God through the prophet saying, if you'll do this, I'll do this, and I'll remove this if you repent here. And in some cases, the Jews did repent, and in some cases, they did not. So it has what we could call a very near or immediate fulfillment. It's right there in Joel 2. You can't move around it. But notice this. Look at verse 28 of Joel 2. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I'll display wonders in the sky on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. Sun will be turned into darkness, moon into blood. Great and awesome day of the Lord comes, etc., etc. Now, presuppositionally, the preterist, remember now he sees everything is past, he would say, well, I just think that that was a fulfillment either right then or at some point just beyond that, but it's still all in the past in relation to us. And I say to myself, now wait a minute, if that were true, when you look at the language of that text, have those, those things ever occurred? Can we have any kind of validity, uh, historicity, factuality about when the sun did this, when the moon did this. It seems to me as though it's pointing about something that's far greater than that. The day of the Lord, you study that phrase, you find out that that is a very, very apocalyptic phrase. Seems to be talking about something in the future. It seems to me that Joel is predicting something that will happen not in a near fulfillment, but in a future fulfillment. This almost sounds like it's the second coming just as we have read about it in Mark 13. The sun, the moon, all that stuff, you're saying, wow, I mean, maybe it is true. Maybe there's a, an immediate fulfillment. Maybe there's something later on. And just as soon as you're pretty fat and sassy and happy and, boy, you've interpreted these passages and you're saying, boy, it had its near fulfillment and, boy, it has that second coming fulfillment and, boy, I am a Bible interpreter. All of a sudden, Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. And when he preaches in Acts chapter 2, he says... All that stuff that sounds like it's second coming stuff, I'm going to quote it, and by the way, it's happening at Pentecost, the beginning of the church. He says, Acts chapter 2, verse 15, These men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, I'll pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And he gives the same prophecy. And you look at verses 17 and 18, and you say, wow! it seems to me that maybe all of this stuff was fulfilled at Pentecost, not the second coming. I mean, look, I mean, verse 19, I'll grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, sun will be turned in the darkness, moon in the blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And all of a sudden you're, you're at a query again. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Okay, I understood how some of that Joel chapter 2 was a near fulfillment, and I understand that I thought it used to be second coming, but then he applies it here to Pentecost, but wait a minute, what happened at Pentecost? I mean, there was prophecy there. The young men did see visions, old men did dream dreams. Uh, the Lord did pour forth his spirit, and they did prophesy, that did happen at Pentecost. But did all of this happen at Pentecost? Great wonders in the sky, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. Sun will be turned in the darkness, moon in the blood, great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. There's that phrase, day of the Lord. Well, now, a preterist, again, here's what he says. I believe you can take every one of those phrases, sun, moon, stars, 
all this vapor, smoke, fire, all this, and you can just see it simply as metaphorical language which is speaking of what God is doing right then and there at Pentecost. You don't have to take it beyond that. It's no problem. And you know what I say to those brethren? That could be true. It could be true. But then again, it might not. It might not be true. You see how you walk the tight rope of trying to be a Bible interpreter? It might be true. And if you're a brother in Christ studying as diligently as I am, and you have your presuppositions, and I admit it, and I have mine, and I admit it, then what we need to do is understand that maybe it's to be interpreted that way, but maybe not. And it seems to me that, again, the language, even in Acts 2, has both a near fulfillment right at Pentecost, but a future fulfillment also speaking of the second coming. That's what I think about Mark 13. It has a near fulfillment. Jerusalem 70 A.D. has a future as well. Now, since everyone's totally confused and our time is gone, let me just give you a couple of other passages and we'll be done. Now, I don't have time for you to go there, but I'll just tell you. Here's something amazing. The Apostle Paul. I mean, if there was anyone who was a tremendous interpreter of God's revelation to him directly, I mean, boy, I'm sitting here sort of sloshing around with my Greek or Hebrew tools and my theology books, and I'm sweating it out. In fact, I'm sweating right now. And here's Paul receiving direct revelation. I mean, if there's one guy, Paul, who had it all straight, boy, I, I just want to go and say, okay, well, what are the Pauline keys to interpreting the Bible, right? So I go to the writer to Hebrews. And I look at the writer to Hebrews and I say, now surely he and Paul aren't contradictory to each other. And I look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, and there's a quotation of Psalm 2-7. Today, my son, I have begotten thee. Right? And in the context of Hebrews chapter 1, it is clearly a reference to the incarnation of Christ. Clearly. There's absolutely no question. Nobody disagrees with that. So, clearly, the incarnation has a prophecy attached to it in Psalm 2-7 that says, today I have begotten thee. God talking about incarnating Christ in a human body. It's incarnation. Absolutely no question about it. The problem is, the same writer to Hebrews says something different than that in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, he's talking about Christ as the high priest. He's talking about both the life and the death of Christ in the context of that, clear as bells. Nobody disagrees with that. And guess what? The writer to Hebrews quotes the same psalm and the same statements and says, it's not the incarnation, it's the death and the life of Christ. Today, my son, I have begotten thee. You are my son, today I have begotten thee. So you say, well, okay, is it the incarnation that he's referring to, this Psalm 2 passage? Does it have a fulfillment in the incarnation, or is its fulfillment in the life of Christ as high priest and the death of Christ by giving his life as a sacrifice for sins? And then you say, okay, Paul, rescue us. Paul, help. I'm going down for the third time. You go to Acts 13.33 where Paul quotes Psalm 2-7, and guess what he applies it to? The resurrection. Oh, my. I thought I was going to have help. So all of a sudden, Psalm 2-7 is a verse from the Old Testament. It's a prophetic psalm in the sense of that which is going to be fulfilled, and it no doubt had its fulfillment at some point back then in terms of judgment. It says, do homage to the Son, lest you perish in the way. Believe me, there were a whole lot of Jews who perished because they didn't do homage to the Son, to Messiah, to God. And all of a sudden you get to the New Testament and you say, okay, well, what about this and that? Well, the writer to Hebrews says, it's the incarnation. No, check that. It's the life and death of Christ. No, check that. It's the resurrection of Christ. Oh, my. 
I mean, you could find yourself so clueless at times, you're underneath your bed trying to spout the Greek alphabet. I mean, what do you know? What do you understand about this stuff? Well, look, we're all just noble Bereans. We have to do the very best we can. And my advice for myself and for all of us is to, number one, understand that there are time texts here and they need to be interpreted in a certain way and maybe not all of them are referring to the very same event. Maybe one's referring to one and one's referring to another. Secondly, I have to understand that they're Old Testament prophets and they just prophesy with one unit of thought and somebody else applies it differently in a New Testament age and that's okay, whether it's Jesus or anybody else. That's okay, I just understand that passage as that writer understood it. It's no problem. It's not a hedge against inerrancy. It's not a mistake. It's not an error. It's just the way they chose to do it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it's okay with me. And then thirdly, just admit your presuppositions. Just admit them. Just say, I have presuppositions. I have a system. It's a system of continuity. I see a whole lot more continuity between the Testaments, or I'm a discontinuity man. I see a lot more discontinuity in the relationship of the Old and New Testament to each other. I admit that. I still see a future for Israel, and it seems to me, seems to me best, possibly, maybe, that some of these things that are referred to in Mark 13 are near and far fulfillment. What do you think? It's tough, isn't it? Extremely tough. You say, boy, it's, you, you've made it so tough, you, you don't motivate me to study. You scare me. Don't do this. Well, you know what it does? It scares you into submission to Scripture. Challenges you to say, look, I don't have this thing wired. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can illumine my mind to understand these things, and I'm going to battle and hack my way through these things for all my days, and then it'll be revealed to me. Now that's diligence. Fatalism says, I'm so scared, I will not study any of this stuff, and I'll just let it all pan out in the end. That's not profitable, that's not being a diligent student of Scripture. It may not always, uh, in your mind or mine, be as clear as at other times, but we must say to ourselves, what does God say? I want to see what Scripture says about these things so that I can worship God in an intelligent, God-ordained way. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, these things seem to be so important and yet so challenging. How can we say, Lord, that any of us have arrived at a system that is so airtight that we can, with unbridled confidence, say that we know the truth in these matters? Surely there's much humility here. Lord, I believe that there are some inconsistencies in some of the things that I see and read and hear in others, but I love them, and I appreciate their ministry, and I pray that you would work your work of grace in my heart, that if I'm wrong, if I'm in error, if I need to have a better perspective, that you would show me, illumine my mind, allow me to see Scripture as you would have me to see it. And I pray that if you can use me as an instrument in their lives, that you would do so by your guiding hand, so that we might be those who are the clear and humble servants who are trying to understand these passages in a right way. Father, thank you for our time. May we leave here not displaced, not fearful, but convicted and challenged that we must understand these things because it changes our hearts into godly men and women. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.